open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Our focus this morning will be on verses 11 through 16. I'll be reading 1 through 16. Then, after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we, have, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, grant your spirit to teach us perhaps this truth that we already love and know, but but to teach us all the more to rejoice to contend, to love this blessed truth given to your church through your apostles. In Christ's name I pray, amen. 
Paul has already delivered a powerful one-two punch defending his apostleship and the gospel. And now he finishes with a vicious uppercut. First, the left jab comes in 1, 10-24, where Paul demonstrates that his gospel did not come from men or through men. Rather, it came through Christ. And so Paul didn't go to Jerusalem to get his gospel there and then take it, perverting it in the rest of the world. And he follows with the right cross of 2, 1 through 10, showing the unity of the apostolic gospel. Rather than getting his gospel from Jerusalem and then distorting it, what is seen here is that he takes his gospel to Jerusalem where they recognize it. And now in 2, 11 through 16, he finishes with this vicious uppercut for a KO. Here Paul demonstrates that his apostolic authority stands even over another apostle should that apostle's conduct be contrary to the gospel. And that that is what the contrast is, that this is so is made evident in that our text opens contrasting not Paul with Peter, but Peter with Peter. Verse 11, but when Cephas... Now Paul at this time has had more interactions with Cephas, Aramaic, Uh, whereas Peter is the Greek form of his name. He has more interactions with Peter at this point than any other apostle. In 1.18, he tells us that on his first visit, he saw no other apostle save James. He saw none other than Peter with whom he stayed for 15 days. And 14 years later, after his conversion, when he comes to Jerusalem again, Peter and James and John add nothing to Paul, 2.6, but extend to him the right hand of fellowship, 2.9. And so the but when Cephas of verse 11 is in contrast to the and when James and Cephas and John of verse 9. And when Cephas, verse 9, Jerusalem, showing their unity in the, in the gospel, but when Cephas, verse 11. The difference is not one simply between Paul and Peter, but between Peter and Peter. As for the occasion, we've seen Paul visit Jerusalem twice. Now, Peter comes to Antioch, verse 11. This is not Antioch, Pisidia, that church among those Galatian churches to which Paul is writing, it's not to Antioch Pisidia, but Antioch Syria, one of the largest cities, likely the third largest cities in the Roman Empire at this time. Antioch Syria was the church that would send Paul and Barnabas out on that first missionary journey wherein they would plant those Galatian churches, including Antioch, Pisidia, Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe. The church at Antioch, Syria, was likely the second largest church in the world at this point. I think there's little doubt to that. And in the irony of providence, God would use Paul to scatter the church at Jerusalem 
and then strengthen the church. And early on, it was Antioch in particular. In fact, it was there throughout his ministry that he really headquartered. Acts 11 explains the genesis of the church at Antioch, telling us, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. You remember that Paul gave his consent to that stoning. And the persecution that arose over that, Paul has already told us in 1.13-14, he was zealous above all his brothers in. So the persecution that is scattering them is Paul's. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So it's this ethnically diverse church where Paul's been ministering that Peter visits. And it's there that Paul rebukes him because he's wrong. He stood condemned, meaning he was guilty in this. This didn't arise out of any envy or jealousy. It simply concerned truth. But today, this wouldn't be thought nice. We compromise on truth to maintain the unity of niceness. It's whenever someone isn't nice that we blame them for disturbing the peace, for disrupting unity, blame them for causing division. But the standard isn't how we feel. The standard is God's truth. It stands over all of us. This is no excuse to be mean because part of the truth is that we are to minister to one another in love. We're to speak the truth in love to one another. But the standard is God's truth. Right and wrong, not personal feelings, should determine how we relate to one another. Because of the preciousness of the gospel, we should both be willing to give this kind of a rebuke and eager to receive this kind of rebuke. There should be more eagerness on our part to receive it than to give it. We should be eager to do this, and willing to give this, no matter the cost, because the cost will be higher if we do not. If the gospel is lost we're lost. Better to offend someone towards heaven than to nice them towards hell. 
Luther comments, it's better to lose a friend and a brother than to lose God the Father. For if God the Father is lost, man the brother will not remain very long. But what's the specific situation here? Verse 12, Peter was eating with Gentiles until certain men from James came. And then he separates himself. These could be genuine Jewish Christians. But I think there's little doubt that this was the beginning of what would lead to the Jerusalem Council. In Acts 15.1, speaking of Antioch, we're told that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In their response to this, the Jerusalem Council, those elders at Jerusalem and the apostles with them would send this word back to Antioch. Since we've heard that there are some persons, we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So, whenever we read that these men came from James. They might simply be Jewish Christians who show up. But I think this is part of what is going to lead to some coming from Judea, insisting on circumcision. And regarding those persons, James, along with the rest of the apostles, want to make it clear, we gave them no such instructions. But at this point, we're told nothing more than that these men show up. No false teaching at this point. They just show up. And Peter switches tables. Why does he do this? Well, you go to Leviticus 11 or Deuteronomy 14, and we see these various food laws that speak of certain foods being clean and other foods being unclean. They were not even to touch these foods. They were not even to deal with plates or bowls or cups that have been used in any way, with unclean foods. Whatever the carcass of an unclean animal touched, that would be a pork chop. Whatever it touched would be defiled. So Leviticus 11, 32-35 explains, anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean. Whether it's an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose, it must be put into water and it shall be unclean until the evening. Then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean and you shall break it. Any food in it that could be eaten on which water comes shall be unclean. And all drink that could be drunk from which... Every, from every such vessel shall be unclean. And everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean. Whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Now, though Ephesians 2.15 tells us that these kind of regulations were abolished because of the fulfillment of the Old Testament that came in Christ, it's important to realize 
that they remain the Word of God. They maintain authority, that there is truth that they're meant to communicate. That Christ doesn't just obliterate these things altogether, rather He brings them into fullness and greater light. And further, Peter was discipled in these things from his youth. These were ingrained in him. So realize how much inner turmoil there must have been for the Jew. Now, none of this is to excuse Peter's behavior. There is no excuse. Rather than excusing Peter, I want to curb any hypocritical judgment on our part. Judge Peter. Yes, indeed, you're meant to judge him and see that he's wrong and to judge yourself with him. Because who among us has not judged a brother in Christ, even separated from him to some extent, because of some tradition of man that has no roots in the Scripture? Whereas Peter's grounds did. But, Peter's conscience is not weak or uninformed on these matters. It isn't as if Peter hasn't thought these things through. The motivating factor behind all of this, verse 12, is fear of man, fear of the circumcision party. Paul has established that His former life, his life in Judaism, was one that was motivated by seeking to please men. Fear of man. In 1.10 he said, he asked, am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So there was that time whenever he was not a servant of Christ, whenever he was advancing above all his peers in Judaism, and that life was one where he was trying to please man. It was a life of fear of man. He's demonstrated that his gospel has not been crafted or altered because of fear of man. In 2.6 he said of those who seemed influential that what they were makes no difference to me. Now, the point of this isn't that Paul is courageous, whereas Peter is cowardly. The point is that Paul has not altered his gospel in its content to please man, whereas Peter did alter his behavior to please man. And the substance that Paul is wanting to get at in both of these instances is to demonstrate the supremacy of the gospel above all. With this, it's hard not to picture a junior high cafeteria. Paul enters in, and he sees Peter, the cool kid, who had been eating with the weird kids, switch tables once the cool kids from Judea enter the cafeteria. Unfortunately, we don't mature out of this. Don't think little of Peter. Rather, realize that if Peter could sin so, we are not immune. And the result of this is that the other Jews act hypocritically along with him. Even 
Barnabas. Barnabas who has stood beside Paul so often. Barnabas who is the one who brought Paul before the apostles. Do you sense the sting that is in this letter here? Even Barnabas was led astray. Now the hypocrisy was not on the part of those who came from Jerusalem. Very likely their true faces are being seen in all of this. They're not putting on any mask. The hypocrisy is demonstrated on the part of Peter, Barnabas, and the other Jews who were part of the church at Antioch who switched sides of the cafeteria. Peter's hypocrisy in this was profound. Though 2.7 makes it clear that Peter had a ministry that focused on the circumcised and Paul a ministry that focused on the uncircumcised, the mission of the church to the Gentiles, as far as the apostles were concerned, began with Peter. And began in a most striking way. In Acts 10 we read, The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And while he's pondering this vision, men from Cornelius, a Gentile, approach. Peter receives word from God that he's to go with them. And on entering Cornelius' home, Peter tells them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter preaches the gospel. And we're told the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So you see how extreme Peter's hypocrisy is here. Paul's words bite. But don't you recognize that there's a compliment in them as well? The word hypocrite would be used for those who were actors. Some actors are bug ugly on both sides of the mask. They're ugly on both sides. They're, they're ugly and they put on an ugly mask. Some hypocrisy requires a true righteousness be hidden. Such was the case with Peter and Barnabas and the Jewish Christians of Antioch. See, often hypocrisy puts on a show of true righteousness. It isn't true righteousness, but that's what it's attempting at is to put on a show of true righteousness. What Peter and Barnabas do here is hide a true righteousness behind a mask of false righteousness. 
a righteousness that will please man. This is not normally how they acted. That's why it is hypocrisy. But later, we're told that whenever false teachers at Antioch were insisting on circumcision, that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Acts 15.2. And whenever things come to a head at the Jerusalem council, there's much debate, we're told, and then Peter stands and he says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter could fall, but Peter could also stand. Luther reflects, No man has ever fallen so grievously that he could not have stood up again. On the other hand, no one has such a sure footing that he cannot fall. If Peter fell, I too may fall. If he stood up again, so can I. But that episode gives testimony to who Peter was before and after this instance. And Peter's, Paul's intent in this, in this is not to throw Peter under the bus and prove himself the better apostle. Though the false teachers likely esteemed Peter and James above Paul, Paul isn't laboring to show his superiority, but to show the superior, superiority of the gospel, even over the apostles of the gospel. Paul has placed himself under the same standard of judgment. 1.8 Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's important to realize as we begin to contrast now Paul with Peter. Paul sees that the conduct of Peter is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Verse 14 And he rebukes him. It's not in step with the gospel. Now perhaps you've been troubled by Peter's sin here because it's caused you to wonder, can we trust the apostles? And this is most helpful to see at this point that the contrast is not between Peter's teaching in one instance and Peter's teaching in another, but between Peter as an apostle of the gospel, and Peter as a sinner saved by grace. It's between Peter and his apostolic gospel, and Peter and his conduct. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, the truth which was delivered through the apostles, Peter being one of them, Again, Luther proves insightful. The apostles were not superior to us in anything except their apostolic office. 
We have the same gifts they had. Namely, the same Christ, baptism, word, and forgiveness of sins. They needed all this no less than we do. They were sanctified and saved by all this, just as we are. Peter's conduct is out of step with the gospel. It's the opposite of what Paul commands in Philippians 1.27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And the idea of that isn't that we can merit the gospel, but that the gospel warrants certain kind of behavior as a response of gratitude on our part. And the military and officer might be charged with conduct unbecoming an officer. And Paul is saying your conduct is unbecoming the gospel. R.C. Sproul expressed, all preachers are vulnerable to the charge of hypocrisy. In fact, the more faithful preachers are to the word of God in their preaching, the more liable they are to the charge of hypocrisy. Why? Because the more faithful people are to the word of God, the higher the message is that they will preach. The higher the message, the further they will be from obeying it themselves. This is true of all the saints. The more we grow in holiness, the greater our perception of the massive distance between what Christ has done for us and what we do for Him. This shouldn't dishearten us. Rather, it should enliven us all the more to live lives worthy of Eve. Who loved us so. Still, here, Peter's sin is grievous. It's severe as it's lending credibility to this false teaching which undermines the gospel at its very heart. And so Peter rebukes them, rebukes, uh, Paul rebukes Peter, excuse me, to his face before them all. And again, in our effeminate age, we think Paul unnecessarily harsh. With skin as thin as that of a toddler, we know such a thing would make us cry, and that just can't be nice. But public sins are to be rebuked publicly. Especially those of leaders, and all the more as it threatens the heart of the gospel. Regarding elders, Paul instructed Timothy, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear, 1 Timothy 5.20. Paul's rebuke points out the hypocrisy of Peter in requiring of the Gentiles what the Jews themselves do not observe, verse 14. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? But then Paul says, verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now that sounds like something certain men from James would say. There were advantages to being a Jew. Romans 3, 1, Paul asks, what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? The following verse, he answers, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Romans 9, 4-5, he adds that 
To the Jews belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Ephesians 2, 11-12 draws out what Paul is getting at. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Peter and Paul enjoyed all kinds of advantages. They were not left in the dark, as these Gentiles were. And his point is, even so, they were not justified by what they did, but only through faith in Christ, verse 16. You notice how emphatically Paul comes down on this, repeating the same thing in various ways, yet supporting his argument by his argument. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the truth of the gospel that Peter's conduct is contrary to and that is being attacked by the false teachers. The doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. J.I. Packer compares this doctrine to the Greek titan Atlas, who bears the world on his shoulders. He writes, The doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. It bears a whole world on its shoulders. The entire evangelical knowledge of God the Savior. He says, if Atlas were to lose his footing, this Atlas, this doctrine everything would fall with it. Paul would agree because he says if anyone preaches another gospel than this gospel, let him be accursed. We'll explore the depths of this glorious truth in the months ahead. But it's encapsulated so powerfully in this one verse. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the the law, no one will be justified. Before the holy God of heaven, the only hope any of us have of standing just in the court of this judge is that we come with nothing of our own, but throwing ourselves in trust upon Christ. You see, the Reformation doctrine of justification was radical not because they said man was justified through Christ, but because they said he was justified through Christ alone, and faith alone. 
And you ask, where is the alone in the text? It's in the words, not by works. Nothing other than faith. Faith alone. The Heidelberg Catechism speaks of justification this way. How are you righteous before God? Answer. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had committed, never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. In Romans 3, Paul says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Justification means a sinner being declared righteous before the holy judge of heaven. But why is it that faith in Christ results in our being declared righteous? In Romans 3, Paul explains that this justification is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. It's a justification that comes through Christ because His blood was poured out as payment to redeem us and purchase us back to God. The payment was Him suffering the wrath of God Almighty in our place. But that's only part of the equation of justification. Not only are our sins imputed to Christ, His righteousness is counted as ours. And so Paul explains in Romans 5, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so strictly speaking, it is not faith that justifies. But we are justified through faith. As faith clings to Christ who is our righteousness. Paul is basically saying, You are not saved by your works. You are saved by Christ's. And so do not trust in your own doing. As one hymnist said it, put your deadly doing down. And say with Augustus Toplady, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Sinner, I plead with you. None of your doing can do nothing but damn you more for your arrogance and pride in thinking you could make right such wrongs. 
throw yourself and abandon on Christ and this great good news that He suffered for sinners, rose defeating death, and is the righteousness before the Holy Judge of Heaven for all Jew and Gentile alike, all who believe in Him. It's this blessed truth that's threatened, not by Peter's teaching, but by his conduct. Threatened so seriously because of Peter's influence, because of his prestige. So can you see why it is that Paul rebukes him so? The point of these contrasts, again, is not to build esteem for Paul over Peter. That was the play of the false teachers. The point is to esteem the gospel of Christ, and thus the Christ of the gospel above all. I'm sure there was something in Peter that really wished Paul didn't have to recall this particular episode and etch it in Scripture immortal. And yet, I'm also sure that the better part of Peter was thankful that he did for the sake of the gospel. That's why Paul highlights this episode. Because it so strongly demonstrates the veracity of his apostolicity and the truthfulness of the gospel of salvation by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. May this apostolic gospel of justification by faith, by grace, in Christ, stand supreme over us all. May we lovingly not only encourage and exhort one another in, but rebuke and receive rebuke for the sake of it. May we fight tenaciously for it out of love for man and zeal for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, Grant sinners sight to behold Christ and embrace Him as their only salvation. And grant your saints zeal and love for this truth that we might declare it and live lives worthy of you. In Jesus' name, Amen.